One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the show that taps into the way music becomes bound to our lives and our memories to bring out the storyteller and our guests. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is Robin Young. Robin has hosted Here and Now on NPR, broadcast from WBUR in Boston since the turn of the millennium. Prior to her time in public radio, Robin was a documentary filmmaker who also reported for NBC, CBS, and ABC television, and for several years was substitute host and correspondent for the Today Show. She won a Peabody Award in 1990 for her documentary, The Los Altos Story. Robin was born in New York on Long Island, attended Ithaca College in upstate New York, and has lived and worked in Manhattan, Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles, but says Boston is her hub. We had the pleasure of meeting her when she was at WGCU for a station visit and are so honored to have her in the Three Song Stories chair. Hi there, Robin. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm not fine. I cannot narrow this down to three songs. <laughs> and, we did, and we kind of sprung it on you in a little I bit. I know, of a, yeah. but, oh, man, you, and a good day. Uh, you're, uh, you've got it. So I don't normally get to watch our guests talk about themselves in front of a crowd for a while before <laughs> the episode. So I have some insider knowledge. When was the last time you were mistaken for Terry Gross? <laughs> you know what? I, I tell you, it, you, tell, you heard my story that I tell. Yeah. And in many markets, we're back to back. And sometimes someone will run up to me and say, oh, my gosh, that story you did on fill in the blank. Oh, that was so incredible, that interview. And, of course, I know I didn't do it, and I know she did it. And I say, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for your support. (laughs) She's on my list. Oh, well, great. We would love to have her. We we would have her. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, so you're traveling. You're in a whirlwind. Uh, do you listen to music while you travel? All right. Here's uh, we have to. I'm probably going to have to pay you both 150 dollars after this session is over, because this is a very powerful topic for me. This doesn't come lightly to me. Music is so important to me that I don't kind of just listen to it. In fact, you know, sometimes my guy will say, "Hey, let's put on. Let's listen to. You know, let's put on some background music." There's no background music. You know, it's too emotional. It's too important. So you can't listen to it while you're working there? I, I, Unless it's really if, the right thing. If anything, I put classical on. Okay. A classical that's not, you know, one of the ones I'm going to talk about that doesn't bring me to my knees. Mm. Um, uh, because it's just, it's so evocative. It's Suddenly you're in a time and place and, you know, and suddenly, oh, my God, that breakup when you were, you know, 17 or, you know, whatever it is, it just... It's, this is not a simple topic. Mm. <laughs> um, music. So when you're on a plane, then you don't have to be working the entire time. You can zone out and put on Spotify or something like that. No, I'm going to profoundly disappoint you. I don't. I I read. I'm, I never have no you're, nothing you're, you're to do. Always consuming media. Uh, always, to always reading. The future. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I suppose I, I, that's not true. I mean, I actually it is true that I'm always working on planes, um, and I I do listen, but I listen to everything. I mean, I love country. I love all things rock and roll, everything rock and roll. I love pop. I love popular music. I love jazz. I love classical. Um, You know, I love Lizza. I love, you know, I mean, I just, you know, I just, I love contemporary music. I love hip hop. Um, I love music. 
I love music. Do you listen to Here and Now when you're not hosting? Yes, I do. Ha, yeah. huh. you think you're going to catch me on well, that? No, I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> I asked Neil Conan that once about Talk of the Nation, and he said, well, you know, either they're better than me and I'm kind of irked, or uh, they're worse <laughs> than me and I'm kind of irked. <laughs> so. the, the, the late, greatly missed. The late, great, uh, yeah. Neil Conan. I, I do, uh, you know, it's middle of the day, I want to know what's going on. Yeah. Um, and I love our, our, our staff. I mean, it just, I love them. Uh, you know, Deepa Fernandez, who's our most recent host, is brings... Uh, we're not all the same, you know. Anybody who thinks that diversity of everything—age, opinion, um, you know, location and background—everything makes it a better pie. Um, and so, I yeah, I love I love uh, listening to how other hosts approach stories. But mainly, I want to I want to know what's going on. Yeah, you gotta go, gotta well, we'll get on. more into here and now, etc. Yeah. later. So, but back that's to the so beginning. heavy. What you just said. See what we did there. We named it here and now, so you would say things like, "We'll get more into the here and now." Yeah. See wow, how that, that. I'll never hear it a different. I'll never hear it the same again. <laughs> um, I would not have been able to resist the pun of calling it here, like H E A R, and I, now. You know, this was not up to me, but it's so funny you say that because Bruce Gellerman was the original host and also named the show, and he is the. Most, he's the biggest punster you've ever met. I dearly miss him. My favorite lead to a Here and Now show, it just, this was when Bruce and I were um, hosting it together. And it was when the Mir satellite uh, was <laughs> crashing back to Earth. And here was Bruce's line that he wrote for the opening billboard, you know, when we just do a snippet to introduce the NDA. He comes up and says, you know, I'm Robin Young, it's here and now. Oy vey, it's Mir. <laughs> <laughs> the Mir spaceship coming back to Earth. Oh, so it's amazing that he didn't think of the here as an H-E-A-R. And, of course, we leave ourselves open to, if we're behind the news at all, even a, a nanosecond, we will hear from a listener who says, what are you, now and then? <laughs> 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 what, have you been there? Um, but there you go. Uh, so where did you grow up? And how would you describe the musical background of your childhood? Extensive. And yeah. I grew up on Long Island in New okay. York um, in, in the <laughs> 50s, um, a long time ago. But um, uh, it, was, uh, it was just a part of the fabric of our lives. My mom had studied opera. My dad just adored music. We were a very musical family. Um, you know, uh, choir was a big deal. My brother turned out to have an extraordinary ability. Um, and so in my grade school, your class never began until my brother came and sang um, either the national anthem or a song like Climb Every Mountain. Mm. Uh, a, he went on to have an acting career. If you've seen Deer Hunter uh, or Hare, he played Claude in Hare. Where do I go? Follow the rain. You know, that guy. Yeah. Um, he, had a, he has a gorgeous voice. And so uh, we all, we all would sing. And and then as far as listening to music, uh, you know, I saw the Weavers at, uh, at uh, Carnegie Hall in New York. I mean, when I was a little nothing, um, we just, their music was always playing the uh, Frank Sinatra, um, uh, Tony Bennett, and a lot of folk. And we loved classical music as kids. I mean, it was just, it was understood that it was part of our lives. Um, 
I'm going to guess that you played the piano. I did. You mentioned earlier, see, this is more of my research, my opposition research from earlier. You said if you didn't go into media, you were going to teach piano. I was, well, (laughs) you don't have to know. I mean, I, you know, to the little ones, but, um, yeah, if you have one here, I can bang out for Elise still. To oh, wow, <laughs> I don't, but... <laughs> oh, good, because I would stink. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I thought it was going to be more a part of my life than it ended up being. And in fact, this, as you've told me, that this this simple little idea tends to pierce your soul at times. And it has, because one of my great regrets, and I'll probably be sobbing about <laughs> 20 minutes, is that I didn't continue with my music. And, um, you know, it's, it's something I keep thinking, well, I'm going to pick that up again. Well, and so um, I did think I was going to do more, but there hmm. you go. Do you remember the first music that you owned as a, as a younger person? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, may I just, it's a full story. So um, sure. having grown up in New York, I, like uh, other uh, children my age, uh, was just wed to the New York radio stations. We had Cousin Brucie and we had Murray the K. Murray the K, what I would, I had the little transistor radios with the tiny little holes punched in the leather pouch. You're way too young, but you're nodding politely. But it had like a leather pouch <laughs> and little holes in it, and you put it under your pillow, and you would listen all night. Transistor to, radio. Yeah, that with one. With that little leather casey thing. thing. I remember those. Yeah. Sort and, of. Um, <laughs> sort of. And um, I just, and my first loves were like the four tops and those beautiful 45s uh, that had the blue Motown, you know, mm, uh, paper. Yeah cover on them. And in fact, I started, and my family's still like, you did what? I mean, yeah, that's right. You did that. When I was 12 years old, I used to get my best kind of like Dr. Kildare shirt on. I thought I was so hip. And I would go take the Long Island Railroad to Brooklyn to the Fox Theater by myself. Um, Murray the K every Saturday had his swinging soiree. It started at nine in the morning. And he'd say, and here's a little group, you know, be nice to this little kid. He's going places. Here's uh, Michael Jackson and his family or, you know, and the Supremes. And he would just go from nine in the morning till, you know, till at night. And you'd be there with a bunch of screaming uh, kids, all uh, uh, ethnicities from Brooklyn at the Fox Theater and listen to act after act after act. And it was astonishing when I think about it now. I was going to say, did you even realize how no, astonishing I it was? I yeah. didn't. Um, I didn't. And um, uh, so I, I, I loved, loved the music. It was almost too much at times. In mm. fact, that that's going to lead us to my first choice. Well, that's where we are. So yeah. let's go there. Well, um, as I said, I was already... Uh, listening to Motown largely and Murray the K when some of you may know that Murray the K was the fifth Beatle. I know there's a lot of people who claim they were, but the Beatles came. And it was, I mean, I, I, I can't describe it any better than the thousands before me who have tried. What an explosion this was. What, a, you know, your transistor is under your pillow and you are electrified. Like, what is this? And I went to two Beatles shows, um, one at, well, both Shea Stadium. I went to the, both the Shea Stadium shows. One of them uh, had to be stopped because we stormed the stage, and my friend Debbie Cubbage got We? You were a stormer? Yes, I was. <laughs> a, a reporter even then. What's going on out there? And um, 
my best friend Debbie Cubbage got Ringo's drum cover, uh, which she foolishly threw out at some point. Like, what? Um, and just being, there was something, and I know that this had happened before us, Elvis and Frank Sinatra, but there we were told by our parents that there was something different about this. There was something just, I, I think it just changed our cell structure. It moved the tectonic plates. Um, and by the way, on the air once, I said, on, on public radio, I said, it moved the Teutonic plates. <laughs> and the person I was speaking with said, oh, was this in Germany? <laughs> so tectonic. Um, it just changed you. Well, I also then went to uh, see the Beatles at the Ed Sullivan Show. And I remember my father took us in. We went to the hotel. We saw them hanging out the window. And I don't know. Well, I didn't know for decades <clears throat> I, I know why I had the uh, tickets to Shea Stadium because Murray the K, you know, I listened, I did whatever he said, and I bought the tickets and, you know, did that. But I, I couldn't remember. But anyway, I get to the Ed Sullivan show, and I remember I was younger than a lot of the women, you know, young girls who were there. And I remember everything stood up, and I couldn't see. I was, like, trying to see between people. And it was to, – to be in that room, I mean, if somebody could have, you know, captured it in, in a way that they could have plugged it in the wall – you know, they would have done a power outage in all of New York. There was something profound happening there. It's not silly. It was profound. And anyway, I couldn't figure out why I was there. And you'd asked me originally what music meant to me. And for years, it's like people would say, how'd you get those tickets? And I'm like, I don't know. I was like 13. How did I get those tickets? And then one day I was sitting down with a, a dear friend. In fact, Robert Young. He lives in uh, Naples. And um, we were sitting down and listening to... Uh, we were sitting down. He had gotten a tape of the Ed Sullivan show that the Beatles were on, and we were watching it. And that's when I remembered why I was there. Mm. Because the opening act was the cast of Oliver, and they were singing, you know, Food, Glorious Food or something. Uh, yeah, and I went, yeah. oh, that's right. I was the president and sole member of the New York chapter of the Davy Jones fan club. And in addition to taking the train to the Fox Theater every Saturday, I would take the train into New York by myself and go stand at the stage door because Davy Jones played the Artful Dodger in Oliver on Broadway. And I had seen it like 10 times and I was so in love with him. And I offered to start the New York chapter of the Davy Jones fan club, of which I was president and sole member. And he was so kind, he would meet me uh, at the stage door, and we would strategize about how to enlarge the New York chapter of the David Jones fan club. He was so kind. He had given me the tickets to the Ed Sullivan show to see him. So you play. showed up there to see the opening act and then happened to see no, the Beatles. No, I mean, I knew the Beatles were there. I mean, I absolutely, absolutely knew that, but he gave me the tickets. And by the way, just a little aside, I know we're going to hear some music in here somewhere, <laughs> but as a little aside, years later, he died, sadly, here in Florida in his Florida home. Terrible! He's, what a talent! I'm, I know you know the monkeys were life changing for someone of another age. I'm not even thinking of that. I'm thinking of his theater talents and how talented he was and how lovely he was. And I had done an interview with him where I where I reminded him I was president and sole member of the New York chapter of the Davy Jones Fan Club. He's like, oh my god, I remember. We had this great talk. Well, after he died, I got a call from a woman who said. We heard your story. Do you know there's how many of us he he touched when he was seventeen? 
and we're going to have an event for him at Sardi's in New York. Would you come host it? And I'm thinking, really? I mean, who's going to be? But I thought, well, that could be a quirky little human interest story. So I went, and there were a couple hundred people there, all told stories about how this 17-year-old who came from London and lived with a family in Connecticut who had a disabled daughter and how kind he was to her and how kind he was to everyone. And person after person got up and told a story about Davy Jones having nothing to do with the monkeys. Um, Anyway, the Beatles. (laughs) 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 The Beatles were part of this magical, magical time where, you know, you're just feeling so alive. You're coming alive. Your hormones are coming alive. Everything's coming alive. And um, it was through their music. Well, shall we listen to Yesterday? Let's, because shall, shall I tell you this? It's up to you. I'm you, gonna tell you, you, can, you can tee it up or yeah, you can, yeah, let me you tell can you dive little, in. Yeah, I mean, I'm so sorry, that, but I told you, I warned you, oh, that music to me has so you many. Have nothing to apologize for, Robin. So the song I've chosen, <laughs> we could do Help or something like that, but the, I've chosen this yesterday because, again, picture me, I'm 13. You know, there was a, a young person younger than me, like a year younger than me in our neighborhood, Stephanie. And uh, I mean, I was, you know, I thought I was getting kind of mature and everything because I'm listening to my transistor radio and I'm in the know about stuff, but I'm still riding my bike around. And every time I looked up, she was maturing faster than me. And, you know, I liked her so much, you know, she's a little younger than me, but, um, you know, I thought, gosh, you know, maybe I'm maturing a little too fast and couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, everything's a puzzle and when you're 13 or so, 1963, 64, you know. Anyway, um, one night I'm babysitting and I hear this crash. This is in the suburbs of Long Island, but it was still farmland and it was still like you could... And I remember freezing and then I heard all the doors open and slam on my street. People like my dad. I was babysitting in another house and you hear these doors and you hear these men yelling at each other. Where was it? <laughs> get emotional <laughs> and cars starting and it was a terrible car accident you know up in the woods behind the shopping center and all the fathers were rushing up this is before EMTs and all the fathers were rushing off to see and it was Stephanie with a you know a bunch of kids much older and the shock of that like wait a minute I'm still you know, sleeping with my transistor radio dreaming about boys and stuff and I remember I got on my bike Fasten my little transistor to my little handlebar <laughs> with the little dots. Um, and I had, you know, Brucey or somebody on, and I, I was riding up the street to her house. And her little brother came running out. I said, Robin, Robin, there was a Stephanie. Stephanie's dead. Stephanie was in an accident. And at that second, that second, this song came on. And it's like, yep, you're changed. Let's listen to it. Um, Yesterday by the Beatles from their 1965 album Help. It's Robin Young's first song here on Three Song Stories. I'm fine. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, the music just, it's like it comes from another alternate reality it comes to. Yeah. 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 And we mentioned, you know, I mentioned to you earlier that McCartney 321 documentary where Paul, mm-hmm. Paul tells all those stories and it's like 
a lot of the stuff they just went in and banged it out and and, and it was but it was magic mm. you know and it wasn't like you know it seems like they must have had some master plan for magic but they they were just being themselves and making music and touching people's lives for forever well hold on i'm going to check something you said i could absolutely yeah, you, hold on oh no i actually should well well but also they might have been doing something really important like blackbird yeah. Who knew that Blackbird, he had written as an homage to the oh, – I do have to check. Hold on. It's just that I'm tired and I can't – yeah, I'm tired, so you're going to get lots of um, – We're going to get the real Robin Young. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Blackbird. Um, I'm trying – I just can't uh, – written – oh, Little Rock. Little Rock 9. Yeah, it was about the Little Rock. Okay. Yeah, uh, Blackbird uh, – he wrote uh, Blackbird for the women in the Little Rock Nine, the kids who were trying to integrate a, a school, the, the young black women in particular. That's And he went and met them, uh, those who were surviving, and that's what he, what he wrote about. And as he said, he, you know, I'm not going to write the children trying to integrate a school in, you know, I'm going to do it this way. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where were you in the social strata in high school? What was, um, your, what was your jam in high school? Well, there wasn't much jam available to young women, <laughs> <laughs> except jam, you know, like in cooking classes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, I was a swimmer in, in Long Island. It was a big deal. We were really competitive swimmers, a, AAU, not a, AU swimming, right? Um, and uh, so club swimming and then school swimming, theater. You Music? did do theater. That was my follow-up. Oh question. yeah, theater. On oh stage? my gosh. Uh, well, I I was I was always on stage, but also I I was everything I realize now that I always did as a kid was about being a future producer. Right. <laughs> it's like I'm an organizer. Yeah. It's like you know, go over here. You'll be good over here. And a choreographer and things like that. I was really active in choir. We had a an award-winning. Just an astonishing choir experience. Mm. My high school was – it was kind of interesting. It was JFK High School in Plainview, Long Island, New York. I grew up in Old Bethpage. And it was a new school, as much was. And so uh, when they divided the old school, not everybody went. Like my brother's class didn't want to divide. So we got to be the oldest class for like three years. So, you know, we just – thought we could do anything we wanted hmm. because we were. And um, so choir, some listeners of here now know that I still have my choir director, Mr. Cohen, on uh, every Christmas. Uh, yes, Cohen. <laughs> but he just loves Christmas music and we, we talk about um, Do you music. still sing? I, I don't. Uh, this is a big, dis- big regret. I don't. Uh, I used to sing like in a folk group, you know, in, mm-hmm. in college and stuff. But I, I want to... I want to go back to it. I do. And um, God, God, then do it. Shut up and do it. Um, what about karaoke? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm trying to think I would do it, but I don't think there's even any around. And don't you even suggest it if there's one here. We're not going. <laughs> um, I just want to mention real thing, real quick a thing about it is music related. Um, but Mr. Cohen, uh, again, this extraordinary man, and we had an extraordinary moment uh through the choir. It has nothing to do with my song picks, so I'm just going to drive you crazy doing this. But 
This is totally. This isn't. This show's not about the song picks. It's about how the song oh. pips get you talking. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, it is. And then I, at the I end, joke. we pay you one hundred fifty dollars yeah, for the yeah, session. Is that yeah. how it? So you won't be um, the first person who said that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was in high school in you know sixty seven, sixty eight, um, and uh, m- you know just beautiful experience. Um, we uh, then then went on, and in nineteen seventy, we all know Ken Stave happened. Um, I'm sure you can recall the picture, um, Jeffrey Miller lying on the ground, Alice in the runaway from Florida, kneeling over him, and Jeffrey Miller was a dear friend of my brother's, and he was the son of my high school secretary, Mrs. Miller, and it had a profound impact on all of us. I mean, it, it had an impact on everyone, Kent State, um, four dead in Ohio, um, protesting the Vietnam War. Well, it roiled my town, and... The choir, you know, stepped forward and did this Vivaldi Gloria and astonishing piece. And, you know, I, I just, years later, I, I, I still get shivers when I think about that whole moment. And um, years later, I thought, I, I, I literally was driving along at one point and this Gloria came on my classical radio station, you know, Gloria, Gloria, Gloria. Um, and I just froze and I went, Oh my God! And someone came and said, "Are you okay? What's wrong?" I said, "No, it's Vivaldi." And in that moment, I thought, oh, "I've got to write about this. I've got to, you know, I've got to, you know, maybe I'm, I'm going to make a film about." And I started interviewing people. I started talking to people about this moment in my high school choir where the football coach made all the football players be in the choir because we didn't have enough boys, mm. and how we grew into this astonishing choir. But how we had this moment where we were trying to heal the town. I wasn't in the choir anymore, but my sister was, and how we were trying to heal the town through this choir music when, you know, uh, a son of the town had been killed at Kent State, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, Vivaldi, and all of this, and and I, I sat, I went to dinner parties, I, I told everybody, and uh, I got a call one day from someone who said, Robin, your movie's been made, congratulations, what are you talking about? Mr. Holland's opus. <laughs> and all sharp objects had to be removed from near me. They made it a or an orchestra instead of a choir. It was John F. Kennedy High School. It was a football coach who sent the— Was that a cosmic coincidence or did ah, somebody rip you, know, you off? I tell you what. Uh, USA Today called me and said, oh, my God, we have to do a story. This is— <laughs> This story never ends. So sorry about that. But the USA Today called to, you know, some people there knew and said, Robin, that, that you, you've been talking about that. Rule number one, if you have an idea, it's in the cosmic consciousness and just shut up and do it and don't talk about it. But um, I said, I cannot, you know, I, I live in Los Angeles at that point and I, there's no way I want to accuse anyone of stealing anything. But, you know, I said, well, at least let's talk about, how about if we talk, we, we call it, you know, the real Mr. Holland. And I said, well, we, you can't call him the real Mr. Holland because they made their own movie. For all I know, they had an inspiration. But sure enough, they, they did this huge piece. I mean, full page in USA Today. Some of the choir members gathered. I was there. They talked to, you know, Ron Cohen. I mean, he was he's just an extraordinary person, and he'll tell you that. I mean, <laughs> he's just, <laughs> you know, outsized and, you know, charismatic and, um, and uh, you know, didn't think about it. Well, the next thing I know, you know how this happens in media. Something happens and then suddenly it's a genre. Well, suddenly we were a genre. And suddenly 
everybody was doing shows on the real fill in the blank. And I would say, people would call me Maury Povich show. And I'd say, well, you can't really call him the real Mr. Holland. Never mind, come, be on the show. And it, we were with the real guy from, um, oh, what was, anybody who's like the real something, uh-huh. you know, the real Seinfeld, the real guy who's was real, but he's not, but right. the, he was ba- So suddenly we're sitting on all the, Maury Povich and all of these <laughs> daytime talk shows, me and Mr. Cohen are sitting there. With all these other people, like, what is happening to my life? And I would say to the producers, now, just do me a favor. Do me a favor. You can't call him the real Mr. Holland. And then I'd look up on the monitor and they would say, the real (laughs) Mr. Holland. And so I had to be reminded of my tragic inability to tell that story for, like, years afterwards. But anyway, I I digressed. No, it's a beautiful (laughs) digression. (laughs) Um, You were an overnight DJ. Yeah. Music DJ? Yeah. Did you get to pick your own tracks? Well, here's here's what happened there. So this was um, 1973, I think, four maybe. Um, and this and, was kind of your first job in media, right? Close. And just real quick story because I had come I from New York. I was – a governess in Colorado. I was thinking I was going to work with children in music and children like in education. Like sound of music kind of thing? Uh, yes, it actually was. <laughs> and um, and then I saw Pillar of Salt moment. I saw Sesame Street. And I'm like, oh, my God, educational TV, brand new thing. I'm doing it. Got in the car, drove, presented myself at WGBH in Boston. I'm here to work with Jim Henson. And the woman says, oh, honey, they make that in New York. And I I didn't have any money, any job, and she. I went down to TV 38, which I ended up directing Bruins and Red Sox there. Like, what's going on? I'm 23. Suddenly, I wrote a letter to BZ Radio, um, which was a powerhouse AM station, had no women on the air, this four-page handwritten letter about it. It's the women's movement, and and I get a call on a Tuesday, and uh, the guy says, Hi, it's Dave Graves. I got your letter. What are you doing Saturday night? So I'm just, I can't believe you are do- – I'm a serious person and I wrote you this. He said, no, no, get over yourself. I have a shift from midnight to five. I'm not hitting on you. I'm not. <laughs> I have a shift midnight to five. You want it. And this kept happening. I got a women's show on – a women's talk show at 530 in the morning on, on Channel 7. And so now I'm I'm directing at TV 38. I'm doing overnight radio. I'm doing a women's talk show. What It was the women's movement which had – forced Congress to pass a requirement that in order to maintain their license, broadcasters had to have quotas. Gotcha. Of, I was a quota. And baby. you were surfing that wave. I was. And I, I thank them, those women, and I thank the men that helped me because I was very, very lucky. Very, very lucky. And, um, and yes, I had a midnight to five program. And from like midnight to 12 to 1230, maybe I had to go by the programming. But after that, everybody was asleep. You know, Paul Winter Consort, you know, was my theme song. And, I, you know, I played, yeah, I played pretty much whatever I wanted. What was your theme song? Uh, the Paul Winter Consort, um, Icarus. We're going to listen to a little bit of it. Keep talking. Oh, but I can't on my pick. Oh, no, we're going to just play in the background while we talk. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is part of the, we, we have flavor. We put flavor, oh, flavor. into the show. Um, flavor. Flavor. So uh, so you did that, then you wound up in TV, you did a lot of TV over the years, then you finally made it into public radio. Do you miss TV? Do you miss having a camera in your face is the real question, because I don't ever want to do TV because I don't want a yeah. camera in my face. Oh, I'm with you, sister. <laughs> so, um, so you're... I, no, I, this song, doesn't it lift your, just, doesn't it lift your heart? Yeah. 
it's just, you know, so this was my theme song um, on my radio show, my little radio show. Um, and TV, I, I loved it. Oh, my gosh. I loved it. But I always loved audio. We were the first show, Evening Magazine was the first show that used um, video cams. It's supposed to film. And, and um, uh, you know, wearable microphones. Right. Wireless mics. Oh. And I just fell in love with it. And sound became so much more important for us. Um, I, you know, I, I, I tell in a, docu- in a documentary that I made years later, it's the most powerful piece of video that I've ever participated in, been privileged to gather, um, was standing, you know, 50 feet down the hall outside a young man's room. Uh, he was dying of AIDS. And something had just happened, and so the family, we'd all, we'd been talking downstairs, and something had happened, and the father ran up in the room, and we're down the hall, and all, the shot is just the door, and you hear the father say, can we, can we, should we go to the hospital? And, and Steve says, no, no, Dad. And the dad says, this is it? And the son says, yeah, yeah, I can't take this. There's no picture, you know. So, again, I miss so much about television. Um, what I miss primarily about television is when I was doing it, it was across the board. Everyone was a viewer. Everyone was a listener. There wasn't this division we have now. Um, but, no, I love sound, mm. the intimacy of sound. We'll get into, Where were we? Where were we? Well, we're just we're right here, just doing <laughs> this. Um, we'll get into radio more, but let's do your second song now. Okay, and it goes back in time, but you know, uh, all of you, when when uh, you sprung this on me, um, it did make me think that it's not about favorite music because that would be Joni Mitchell. No, no, you know? no, no, yeah. no. It's about music that had an impact at a point in your life, and I I'm realizing that a lot of it did when I was much younger. And so this is also around the same time as the Beatles and everything. It was around the Kennedy assassination um, when I happened to, I, you know, I, I can't remember why, I, I don't think I was sent home. I think I was homesick. And I was sitting with my mother and we were watching everything because it was d- during the day. And all the broadcast stations, and there were only like three, immediately went, you know, no commercials. And we were an NBC family. And I remember they had a single reporter sitting on a stool on an empty television stage, all, you know, only a light on him, all black, you know, dark behind him. And then they would occasionally go, you know, well, they, they'd sometimes go to reporters, but they, don't, they, didn't, they didn't have the facility that we have now. Yeah, but they'd yeah. sometimes go to Dallas, you know. And we were waiting. This was before we even knew that uh, Kennedy had died. And um, when he did die, they went away from the reporter for a little bit. And they just had a screen with, you know, President Kennedy. And they played... Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. And it's just, maybe we should hear a little bit of it to remind people why, why it, it 
was just so devastating. Yeah, let's listen to it, then you can pick it up on the other side. This is uh, uh, Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. This is the Boston Symphony Orchestra. It's Robin Young's second song on this week's episode of Three Song Stories. It's Biography Through Music. That is holy, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, can you imagine, you know, you're 13, you're trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, just, so, we fast forward. I mean, I just, and I think in that moment, I said, I want to tell stories. It's that simple. It's a man on a stool on an empty stage and a glorious piece of music. That's it. And a profound message, you know. And uh, I, I think I think it really did uh, change me. Like, well, that's that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Now you fast forward, and years later, I am at NBC working on the Today Show, and we were at some sort of an awards banquet, and I'm at a table with uh, Tom Brokaw and his wonderful wife, and um, couple older couples, and um, one of them says to me, and how did you, what, what got you interested in uh, telling stories? And I said, well, when I was 13, and I was sitting and watching the television coverage, black and white television coverage of the Kennedy assassination, I, I was just awestruck by the presentation of it. I mean, I wouldn't have known that then, but just how it touched me, this man on a stool, on an empty stage with a solo light, and then going to this, you know, screen just filled with the simple, devastating information that President Kennedy had been assassinated, and this music, this Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, I've now learned, and it just changed my life. And it made me want to be a storyteller. And this older man at the table starts crying. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, what did I, maybe he knew Kennedy. I'm like, I, you know, what, did, what have I done? And his wife turns to me and said, oh, he designed all of that. And the man was Julian Goodman, who had been president of NBC News and many other things. I mean, he was just a, just a, a legend in, in television broadcasting and that, in that fast moment where the news came from Dallas, he was the one who said, one stool, empty stage, um, this music. And I got to tell him the impact that had. Mm. That's pretty great. That's fantastic. You know, it's a kind of a mirror of, of you know, the way music, this is a music story, but it's also a broadcasting story. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and over the course of your career, maybe not to that level, but you've certainly created moments that have stuck with people, too. I you mentioned to earlier, like, yeah. you know, your, your, your 9-11 coverage and stuff like that. Yeah, I pray. I pray, you know, um, that that, that happened. Um, right? What, isn't that what we – I mean, you don't want to manipulate people, but no, you're hoping but you that – No, but you want to – Yeah, you, 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 you do You have something. that bond, you know, yeah. especially in radio. You have that bond yeah. with your listeners. Yeah. And it's a great responsibility, oh. but it's also a great, you know, privilege. Privilege, yeah. yeah. And I, I have to say, I'm just listening to our discussion so far. I'm not a Debbie Downer, right? You know that, <laughs> right? You can see that about yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you let yourself go to where music can take you, mm-hmm. oh my God, it just carves out a whole new space, you know. 
Um, and if you don't let yourself go, you're you're just calcifying. You know, you might yeah. as well go. Um, so, so uh, here and now was around for quite a while before it became a national show, right? Excuse me. No, go right ahead. <laughs> Um, yes, it started in, I think, 1999. Um, yeah, and, um, uh, yeah, yeah, it started in 1999, and I came on in late 2000, and it it went national on 9-11-2001, unbeknownst to us. We, so they, yeah. you were getting picked up, and so you guys thought you were just broadcasting to the people you normally broadcast to. But you had that's probably you know oh, less yeah. daunting well, for you. Well, no, we knew we were we knew we were going national. <laughs> oh, I see. But we, we knew we were going national that day. I mean, I think I said uh, somewhere the day before nine eleven, our lead story was the endangered horseshoe crab in Rhode Island, a very important story. But after nine eleven, it would never ever lead a, a, a broadcast again, and um, we were picking up, we were, you know, having all sorts of um, stations join us. And then the whole network joined us uh, because the planes originated Mm -hmm. from uh, Boston. New York had been knocked out. The NYC had been knocked out. And um, Washington, for different reasons, just did not go to coverage, um, uh, you know, soon enough. And so uh, we were broadcasting and it was just, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty powerful. Um, how much is here and now today, the, down at its roots, still the same show? Oh, I think it's the same same show because we have an element in our show that – now, just to take a second and explain, we are an NPR program now. We have been for about seven or eight years. I've, I've lost track. We were a distributed show uh, by PRI and other uh, – companies, much like uh, Terry Gross's show is distributed, the different shows you hear are distributed, but they are not part of the NPR editorial structure. And we are. We're very proud of that. We're the only show outside of Washington, D.C. that's an actual NPR show. So we have editorial direction from them. We have our meetings in the morning with them. Um, We are tied into their coverage. You know, if Morning Edition is going to do something, we might And you carry it. some stuff sometimes that they carry right, too, right? right There's right. a little bit mm-hmm. of crossover there. Right. Yep. We're definitely now, uh, we're part of NPR and we are still based out of Boston and we, I don't even know how, over, I don't know how many stations we have, but it's you know a lot. And we have, I think, 5 million a week and cumulative 9 million listeners a month. And we're not in um, commuting time. So that's, we're very proud of all of that, but we're definitely a part of the NPR um, and proudly part of NPR. Uh, Presumably you've gotten to interview some musicians over the years. Any highlights you can highlight? God, I'm terrible. I'm (laughs) terrible. It was. Oh, I understand. I don't remember what I did last week. I, yeah, I, I can't. um, That wasn't, that wasn't, you know, the kind of interview. um, I, (laughs) I love talking to musicians and I can't, this just not coming up because there's so much. Richard, you know, Google. So much Which Google famous it. musicians has oh Robin gosh. Young interviewed? I mean, I, I loved – I mean, <laughs> I, I still am such a classical fan at heart, but I, Aaron Copeland, um, uh, loved speaking with him. Um, I can't, I'm like, uh, I can't – I can't – David Byrne. Oh, David Byrne. <laughs> David Byrne was one of my favorite interviews. It was so much fun. And um, oh, we you know, at one point – uh, he he was talking about how, uh, you know, he had, his family had relocated to the U.S. He lived, he grew up in the D.C. area, 
starting as a kid, and um, he talked about how he didn't know you couldn't vote uh, uh, when he got old enough. He didn't know you couldn't vote unless you'd like registered and everything. So he just went and voted. And I said, "Oh my God, we have finally found it! Voter fraud! Yeah, <laughs> here it is, David Byrne." And I asked him. Um, you know, this, he's odd. He can be odd in a way. And one of his bandmates, when they broke up uh, the band, the Talking Heads, um, there was all this reporting that there was infighting and that someone had yelled at him, you know, you have autism, which um, I don't. I think it was meant in a disparaging way. I would not see it that way. Uh, there's, you know, brilliance on the spectrum. Um, and so I very tenderly said, I'm just, I'm just wondering about that. Do you, do you think... You know, I want to be very tender about this. Do you think you, you know, you might be on the spectrum? And he's like, you know, nobody's asked me directly, but yeah, I, I think I am. I think I am. Um, I mean, I love talking to musicians. Richard's got another one for oh, you. Oh, yeah. Tell me. Jog, tell me. jog away, Richard. Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl. <laughs> oh, my God. His book is so great. Um, yeah, keep telling me who I've talked to. <laughs> that was fun. Thank you for reminding me of that. He's so great. He's he's such a humble person. Um Dave Grohl, of course, he talked about, you know, he teared up a lot. I'm going to add him to my list. We'll take him, okay, too. yeah, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. a list. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you seen, I mean, do you guys bring musicians in for segments on Here and Now? Or, I mean, presumably you've at least been around that in the building. Oh, before. my God, yeah. I yeah. mean, oh, sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a scene. Oh, when Steve Winwood came, uh, the whole, everybody uh, came and you know, st- you know. Was that when Jeremy Hobson was there? Because that was one of his three songs. No, it, no, Jeremy. I think might have been <laughs> well, not even. Happened. People haven't heard that yet. Well, I don't a... think Jeremy was. Oh, they born will have though. Yet. Oh, should we not say that? No, 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 no. You're yeah, right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no. I, this was oof, uh, maybe uh, mid 2000s. I gotta get that. St- I gotta find that story. Um, that was wonderful. I mean, that's some of my favorite music. Anything Stevie Winwood does, yeah. I've lost my train of thought. Oh, that <laughs> never happens to me. Oh, I was going to ask you to tell the Lo- the Los Altos story, but you already kind of did, and I didn't want to put you through that again because that was clearly oh, it's very emotional. And that was yeah. the do- by the way, but that was the documentary that you made that yeah. was the Rotary Club California. It's the Rotary Club of Los Altos, and the the president of the club's son had come home in 1989. Dying of AIDS. And it's hard to just hard to wrap our brain around the fact that people were hiding their children in back rooms. And it was that vilified. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. And people weren't getting help. And we had, you know, politicians at the time who wouldn't even say the word. And this brave president of this very conservative Rotary Club, and my dad was a Rotarian, and um, he wanted to make a little film. And I was between jobs. And I said, I'll do it. And it turned into this extraordinary account of how this group of people pulled together and created something awesome. Um, they they resisted at first, like a lot of people. They were like, AIDS has nothing to do with me. Because this was, like you said, 1990? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then a beloved member of their community who um, he was the rather uh, plump Jewish Santa Claus in their parade every year, the owner of the stationery store, Beloved. And he got up one day at a meeting and said, I've been hearing you talking, and I know you think this isn't about us. Um, and I'm here to tell you, remember that blood transfusion I had? I have AIDS. I'm dying. And uh, I went to support... I mean, now we're all, 
you know. Uh, uh, I went to a support group, but it's young people. And um, I'm hoping you can be my support group. Oh, my gosh. And um, after the tears, this group formed the most extraordinary, uh, the Rotary, um, Los Altos Rotary AIDS Awareness Um and still to this day, if you join that club, you participate in some way. In the beginning, I made my little film. Uh, suddenly, it took off. If you've ever seen the film Philadelphia, my phone rings one day. Who directed Philadelphia? What's his name? Uh, I, <laughs> Jonathan Demme. <laughs> my phone rings one day. Jonathan Demme, yeah. yes, the director. He says, uh, I got to ask you about this little story you made because it's it's suddenly this thing that was going to be for Rotary Luncheons is playing on networks and stuff and um, about this extraordinary group of people. And Jonathan Demi called and said, I need to I need to know more. And he brought Dude, the head of the Rotary Club and his wife to Philadelphia to meet Joanne Woodward. And they patterned her character after Dude's wife when the Tom Hanks character has AIDS in Philadelphia. But far more important, they'd say they fanned out across the country. They took the video to all the Rotary Clubs. We went to Rotary International. It's around the world in like 50 languages. Um, and their new initiative that everybody, if you're in that Rotary Club, um, is to um, work on um, preventing transmission of AIDS from mothers to their newborns in Africa. That's a, that's a little film. That's a film did that. I mean, I just love what you can do, you know. Um, Before we get to your third song, can you reflect? Who are you and what are you talking about, third song? We've been here for days. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) I'm Um, sorry. It's just so many stories. No, it's it's, it's, – I love it. Um, uh, Can you reflect on the way the media landscape has changed over the course of your career? Mm -hmm. Um, And and at the end of that road, to me, like – I mean, I've been doing pledge drives forever. And I've been saying for a long time, you know, the the more – the media landscape evolves, the more distinctive what public radio is becomes. Yeah. And that's because we're not changing. We're still, you know, you could pull, pluck a story from All Things Considered 1981 and play it, and it would sound like a story mm-hmm. on All mm-hmm. Things Considered. Can you just reflect on the way everything swirled around us over the yeah. years? Um, I, I liked it. I liked it um, so much more. Uh, decades ago, and I love doing what I'm doing, but I liked it so much more when everyone watched the same thing or listened to the same thing. And so as broadcasters and reporters, you had to be respectful of every opinion, and you had to hear every opinion. And if it was a factual, it was based in facts, you aired it. In fact, there used to be a requirement that in order to have any kind of a a controversial subject, you had to have both sides of an issue. That was licensed agreement. But both sides of the issue might be whether or not to put in a sewer system or even go to war, you know. But now, uh, I mean, people might think this is the this is the trouble that um, there's been an, an active campaign to make people believe uh, up is down and down is up. And so, what I'm about to say, some people are going to say, is. Uh, illustrates bias, but it doesn't. (laughs) So I'll say it anyway, which is that there are people who are being told things that aren't true. And um, you can't put that on the air as an alternate opinion. Now, you can try to reach out to people and you can try to say, listen, I think it's it's important that we talk because I don't think 
I, I just, there's no basis for this reality. And let's, you know, what is your basis for this reality? But right now we are siloed. We're completely siloed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me very sad. Um, very sad. Uh, and I don't see it changing for a long time um, because there's been too much groundwork laid. And there's too much at stake for the people who are involved in this. I mean, Tucker Carlson, um, you know, had a president's ear. That's powerful stuff. Um, And there's too much at stake to take it apart easily. So it it just makes me very, very sad. I have, uh, you know, look, I come from a a staunch Republican family, uh, but that to them meant Lincoln, (laughs) civil rights, Fiscal responsibility, don't you dare wear a fur coat. It's got to be cloth coat. Um, Mamie Eisenhower, right? I mean, uh, New York, upstate. So I'm, you know, to me, it's it's about a perversion of things. And um, I, it's very, very sad. And uh, reporters here, we were all talking. And I think the only thing we can continue to do, we can't even get uh, uh, people of a certain voice to come on the air, they just won't. They don't need. They don't need to. In terms of like elected officials, yeah, they won't like because yeah. their base isn't listening, and they know that. And so they've already they've already crafted that. You know, convinced people not to listen. And and so I think our job is to go go to them and go into places and go to communities and say, let's talk. You know, let's let's what's what are you. What are you thinking about? Hmm. Yeah. I interviewed a woman on this show, and then we're way off the rails now, but that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, she's like with uh, Carnegie, Carnegie Endowment for World Peace. She studies what's called uh, – she kind of coined the term pernicious polarization. And they've uh-huh. gone back and they've looked at um, countries around the world for the last like 120 years when you know the forces within the country have reached a point where each side sees the other as a existential threat. Mm-hmm. And – we are deep in that territory, mm-hmm. but we are also an outlier in that we're a first world country with presumed civil rights and a constitution. We're the we're this is a big experiment we're in right now. Like what's happening with us right now has happened in third world countries, but not here. But that's where we are. Well, it it it's happened in many countries. I mean, you know, uh, despots and uh, uh, and and worse. Uh, you know, um, so highly functioning Western countries. So. I I, I, don't know. I just think we keep we keep trying to reach voices, and it's also you know here in um, Florida, you know the wonderful thing is that you have a lot of people who might ordinarily be entirely on the other side of a divide, except that they see how climate is affecting where they live, and so you are in their communities covering those stories, and that's that's I think the way this all began is that uh, people who can manipulate people see they just want to be heard. And um, so let's let's listen where we have common ground. That's my thought. Cheers to that. Mm. Let's get back on the, the three-song stories train here. <laughs> um, okay, it's time for your third oh, song. Well, and, and this one has to do with uh, later in my life and, and, and what we do in, in a way. It's music, but it's, it's what we do. It's like bringing things to people. So um, I'd done um, the AIDS document. I'd done the AIDS documentary, and I was kind of like, well, "What am I going to do now?" And 
a television had changed so much, the kind of very specialized kind of human interest reporting that I like to do, there's much less of it at this point. It's late 90s. Everything's more talking heads, more, you know, feeding into, you know, what we've just been talking about, the division, but there's less of this kind of storytelling. Um, and a friend of mine who's a radio consultant uh, who ha- who managed the station boss said, would you ever do radio again? I said, sure, I love radio. So I did a, an interesting thing. I, it was a blast. I went to WBOS in Boston, which is a kind of an adult format, but very hip, great music. And I said, you know, I want to do kind of shape a morning program that's kind of like Imus, except not, <laughs> not at all Imus, which would be, you know, guests, uh, interviews, and great music, this cool music. And so we had like Jonathan Alter, who was, you know, then a much more active political commentator would come on all the time. I had Ted Williams on. Oh, mm. my God. Um, and we we do the little of the interview. And, and I had two great partners. And, um, you know, what song would you like to hear? You know, and anyway, that was that kind of show. And I kind of loved it. It was crafting something. It was cool. And um, we have a in Boston, there's a jazz impresario who's just the greatest guy. Um, he just knew everyone. He used to drive miles around, and he just knew everything and everyone. Every town's got one. And he came to me. Freddie Taylor came to me one day and said, Robin, this kid sent me this cassette of his girlfriend who sadly died. But this is a cassette he has of her. And I'm telling you, you have to, you have to listen to this. And I listened to it, and I, I was like, blown away and I just I said I you know I didn't really know how things really worked except I sort of did I knew I probably shouldn't have done this but I one morning I said we want you and I popped the cassette in and and let's listen to what it was and this is the Fields of Gold yep Eva Cassidy yep alright this is Robin Young's final song on Three Song Stories you So then, (laughs) our phones lit up. People were pulled over on I-93 in Boston. There there were tons of cars pulling over. They were, I I mean, it was astonishing what happened. Just astonishing. Our phones rang off the hook. And all I had was this cassette of Eva Cassidy singing Fields of Gold. Her broken-hearted boyfriend, that's him playing guitar, had sent it to Fred. She died way too young of cancer, just on the cusp, you know. And there was such a response that day. I mean, I'm telling you, people were like, I'm, I'm pulling over, and the car in front of me pulled over. Like, we're pull- we've both pulled over because of the- what is this? Who is this? So we started playing it every day. And the next call I get was from a guy named Bill Straw, one of the nicest people, very, just a very sweet, you know, all he cares about is music. A company's called Blix Records. And he had like a few albums that he'd made off of cassettes like that, sold out, completely sold out. And he immediately starts going into production. And it got to the point where, uh, and we, we promise we'll play it every day, we'll play it once a day. And it, people were crying. They would call and cry and say, I need to hear that song. I, I can't buy it anywhere. I need to hear that song. And, you know, we were in Newsweek magazine. We were, I mean, it was just this. Now, I got in trouble because <laughs> it turns out very um, 
successful commercial radio stations don't like it when you just play <laughs> whatever you want off of cassettes because apparently no one gets paid for things. And I'm right. not exactly talking about payola, which, of course, is illegal and gone. But but each minute of airtime is worth something. Yeah. We're using somebody, it for something yeah. else. <laughs> and uh, I have to say that you know, most of the people that were chastising me were men. I don't think they got it. I hate to say it to you. Hey, I'm uh, okay. you're not offending me. Yeah. Um, but this idea that you could be a conduit for, I mean, what if that voice had gone unheard? Whoa. I mean, the power of that. And then I don't know why. I don't know why it touches me so much. I talked to Sting about it. Uh, that's obviously his song. And there were so many more. Oh, my God, Over the Rainbow. You know, listen to her Over the Rainbow, Rainbow someday and just... And you probably, you know, people probably have. And by the way, we're doing a story soon on here and now. I think it's the London Symphony Orchestra is about to do an Eva Cassidy. They've got a record release, and but I don't know what I don't know what they're doing, you know. But we, I said I'm in. I got the letter from the um, the the PR person, you know, that they send out to everybody, and it said we have uh, an event that involves the greatest singer you've never heard of. And I wrote back and I said, Mm-mm, beg to differ. <laughs> you know, I, I think they're going to be pl- – I don't even – this just happened this week. I, they maybe are playing her voice with the orchestra behind it. Can you imagine? Wow. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I wanted to do a documentary and that's why I recorded Sting. And I went down and met her heartbroken parents who just never recovered, you know, to have this this angel, you know. And uh, then it all ended and then it then it began again, you know. With the record sales are phenomenal, yeah. And they just and they had so much of her that I mean, I think she has something like ten albums. Um, but they were brokenhearted. I couldn't do the documentary because I couldn't fo- afford the rights because she um, only did uh, classics and like Over the Rainbow. Like Sting said, I would have given her Field of Gold. She would I wouldn't. She wouldn't have had to pay me. But um, Over the Rainbow. <laughs> big chunk of change so I couldn't use it in my right. I couldn't do a documentary but others said the BBC did one but just I mean look look at there you give wings to something you give a little solace to the family you know you're so lucky when you can do that right yeah. when there's something that's like and both Freddie Taylor who gave me the cassette and I both said uh-uh, you just you know we're just the we're just the somehow the path. We're, yeah. we're you know the right place, and right yeah, time. People. It just somehow got. It was gifted to us. And anyway, go listen to Eva Cassidy. I was not familiar with her, but I'm going to check <gasps> yeah, her out. That's now. my new favorite version of that song. There you like, go. I, that, yeah. I I like the Sting one. It stays with me anytime I hear it. I know that it's going to be like four or five days of just that melody bouncing around. But. Well. This version, I think, has just right. There's something. Taken that isn't spot. isn't it true? There's something. Oh, absolutely. Something. My daughter's a singer, so I'm going to put it there in you her go. ears too. There you go. Um, okay. Are you ready for a speed round? Oh God, no! <laughs> I'm not ready to do this. <laughs> I need a gurney. I, I need to be carried out. We're going to light it up here for okay. the end. We're heading in for a landing. Okay. Um, uh, Robin Young, do you have a nickname that has stuck over the course of your life that you would be willing to share with our listeners? I don't. No. No. Oh wait. Oh, my father called me. It's not a lifetime. It's in my head. My father called me his little shrog. 
because I was a shrimp and a frog. <laughs> a swimming shrimp and frog. I don't know what that was. A frog. I like that. Um, when was the last time you purchased music that had physical form that you could hold in your hand, like a CD or a record? Oh, um, oh, see, this is just because my head's too full of other stuff, and I, 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 I do it. Um, I think I got a Joni Mitchell. Yeah, I got a Joni Mitchell CD that I don't have. I don't remember which one it was, but I got a Joni Mitchell CD. At so you haven't gone full digital, no, full streaming. Oh God, no. No, a lot no. of people have. No, I mean, I'm, I want to buy a record player. Um, if you were a championship wrestler, which you, I'm not, <laughs> what song would you enter with? What would be your like jam music as oh, you rocked on your oh way into this the is, arena? We need time. We need time for this. Um, uh, oh, I need time. It's got to be hard rock, um, or maybe. Um, oh, what's his name? Uh, uh, hold on. This is just that I'm tired. Um, so Joe Satriani, um, yes, <laughs> just so, yeah, Joe Satriani. Like, what's that? Da 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 da. Hold on. If anybody knows it, it's Richard. Joe Satriani. I know, like always with you, with me. Something on us flying on a. Okay, hold on. I'll get it. I'll get it. Isn't this terrible? Surfing with an alien. Maybe. Hold on. Flying in a blue dream. Yeah. Flying in a blue dream. Thank you. Joe Satriani, isn't he great? Oh, oh okay. Uh, oh, you know, I, like a lot of uh, young men, I found electric guitar in my teens, and uh, having a piano background before that, I took to it like a fish to water. And I always liked playing, but then one day I heard "Always with You with Me" by Joe Satriani. Okay, and it like, I you can wear a CD out. It, as it, it turns, turns out, out. yeah, <laughs> because as it turns I out. almost destroyed that CD. Uh, I listen to that song over well, and over Well, let's over. listen to a little over to just a little of okay. Flying in a Blue Dream. Yeah. Da, 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 Strange da, da, musical tastes or histories. Okay. <laughs> um, come on. So what's your wrestler name? Here I am. I'm coming out. Wait a minute. I'm coming out. Hold on. And I'm like, I'm like gesturing at everyone. Like, come on, come on. And this is that this is that still part where the music has oh, come and people yeah, know you're, yeah, you're on your way. Yeah. But you, there yeah, you go. Yeah, out of my way. Out of my way. And I'm now I'm like strutting. Yeah, I'm strutting. I hate wrestling. What are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> this song. Oh, my God. Any wrestler name? Um, <laughs> frightened. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Frightened Shrug. Frightened Shrug. Um, yeah. Okay. If you had to guess, what song do you think you've listened to the most times in your life? Oh, that I, <laughs> that would be any Pat Metheny song. I used to listen to them over and over and over, and on a Walkman, and over. And some listeners are going, yeah, we know, because we were very close friends for a while. Hmm. I would just, the early stuff, I would just, yeah, probably... Yeah. Song you wish you could hear again for the first time. Oh, th- this is unfair. Um, maybe. Oh, there's so many. The River or Case of You, Joni Mitchell. Maybe. Oh, no. but then again, In My Room, The Beach Boys. Oh, dear. There's so many. 
Um, Dusty Springfield. Anything. Okay, let's move on to the next because there's <laughs> okay. too many. Um, you're going to hate this one too. Uh, album you wish you could hear again for the first time. Um, oh, dear. Was it this hard? Is it this hard for other people? Yeah. I, I, um, I was a guest once and it was hard for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, album. God, I love albums. Um, maybe an Earth, Wind, and Fire. The one with That's the Way of the World or something like that. Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, Don Henley. Don Henley, the one with... Um, uh, and, a, and a Cadillac. Da, 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 da. I can see her. Da, da, da. Uh, Boys of Summer. Boys, Boys of, of Summer. Summer. Yeah, yep. that one. Okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's that one was so exhilarating. You were like screaming. Mm. Um, if you were a cocktail or drink of some kind that like a bartender made that represented your essence, <laughs> what would it contain? What? Um, I don't know. Um, I have no idea. Um, it, it would have to have something bubbly and something heavy. Now, I don't drink a lot. I mean, I have wine and stuff, so I don't know what those things would be, and I don't think you – I don't know what a they would be. A slow gin fizz. Yeah. Had to have to have ballast because I got myself some ballast here. All right. But But something fizzy and fun, yeah. A fizzy okay. and fun slow gin fizz. Slow gin's like thick. Yeah. So it would is like, it? Okay. Yeah, it's like thick. Okay. Yeah. It's but a gin now. fizz is a great, like, refreshing, yeah. Okay. All right, Robin, you have to name the drink. What is going on with you? <laughs> That's speed round. Okay, um, name the drink. Um, <laughs> We've compiled a list of all of our guests' cocktails, and one day we're going to have a cocktail party. And uh, maybe even a book. Oh, yeah. Keep dreaming. That's good. Um <laughs> Couldn't tell if you were sarcastic. No, no, no. I'm saying keep, keep. No, no. I love dreams. Hey, you know what? It's true about stories too. Listen, listen. I'm serious. It's like sometimes I'll be like, what if people did this? And what if this were happening? And it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to like be be thinking it's possible in order to catch it. Um, All right. Okay. What would I name the stupid thing? I don't know. Um, Uh. Robin's um, drink. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> that's good enough. This, is, this I'm sounds sorry. To be hard. I'm sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. Um, are there any songs that you'll avoid listening to for oh, some reason? All of them. I really. I mean, you you watched me here. I. Again, if people if people say let's put some music on, you know, casual. It's not casual to me. Um, they're just. Too powerful. You Wait, know? so, uh, yeah, um, we sometimes ask people, you know, like, when was the last time you listened intentionally, right? Because for a lot of people, music is background music. So do you almost always listen to listen? Well, for work, I have to. Like, if you're interviewing someone, you have to you have to listen intently. And no, th- no, I don't. I mean, like, uh, uh, if, if I'm at home and I just want music around and just to, to sort of ed- ed- – what is it? Etch a sketch, my brain of the, of the news. I'll put on classical that doesn't involve, you know, rending of my clothing because it's so, you know, right. um, like the Trout Symphony. Do not play that. And um, 
I'll just put on some classical. Uh, but it's you know, and I do listen a lot for work, and I listen when uh, people that I you know I'm I'm fond of who are musicians you know give me something and say, let's when we listen. Um, but otherwise, it takes a lot for me to listen to music because I it's just I have to be wanting to go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you're a broadcaster. Yeah. If you could magically broadcast a song into the head of everyone on the planet at once and create this big collective moment, would it be Eva Cassidy's Fields of Gold? What, where did you get these questions? Um, We've honed them over Yeah, time. no kidding. <laughs> well, I don't know. Would it be uh, – we haven't even gone to musicals, theater. Would it be when you walk through a storm, hold your, hold your head up high? You know, maybe it would be that. Um, which I cannot listen to. Yeah. Um, okay, you you asked for it. When my mother was dying, <laughs> my brother was f- flying overnight to come. She was in the hospital. We just, there was nothing more that could be done. And my brother John, I have you know beloved siblings, got flew overnight, walked in the hospital room, and my mother had aphasia. She couldn't speak. And she saw him, you know, her son, and he just got on her bed. And saying, you know, when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and climb every mountain. And my mother died. Music Mm. is powerful. And she died smiling. Yeah. You know, when we chatted on the phone, was it yesterday? (laughs) I think it was yesterday. You um, feels like we've known each other forever. I know. Well, that's what job. happens here. Know, that's why yeah. you still owe me one hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> um, uh, you, you used a phrase to describe what we do that I actually made note of. You said, "You know, it's hard for me to pick landmark songs," and that's kind of what we do. And I, yeah. I'm going to remember that because. Um, you know, I just feel really lucky that we get to do what we do because these are – we're asking people to go yeah. to like landmark places. You know? Yeah. I mean you can love I, – I, there's so many musicians. I just – I love their music. I, I will listen to it all the time. But as far as those songs that were there at the time that either either they changed you or they were the soundtrack for that moment when you were changed, that's – that's special stuff. Okay, last weird question, okay. but it is how we end all the shows. Okay. Almost, we still have one more question, but what would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today, what you've done with your life? Oh, I think she'd say, oh, it's so great. I'm so proud of you, but what happened to that movie? And it might still be there. Yeah. Yeah. You've got, you know people. You've got the tools. <laughs> well, that doesn't matter. But <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, it is time for you to recommend your three people that you will promise to share this with. Yep. Who you think might be willing to do it if we could work out the logistics, okay. et cetera. I would say Pat Metheny, dear friend, so heavily. You know, I'll tell you a little. His favorite note is B flat. Work that into the <laughs> Okay. Um, I you know, First question. So, Pat, what's your favorite note and why is it B-flat? Yeah, why is it B-flat? <laughs> well, why isn't it? It's the best note in the world. It is the best note. Um, and just so steeped in jazz. And and yet, he also thought one of the greatest songs of all time was um, The Carpenters, um, Love, Look at the Two of Us, that her, that her voice was the perfect voice. Mm. So... Um, uh, I'm going to tell Jimmy Webb. 
He, I mean, wrote some of the great songs of all time, Wichita Lineman, uh, you know, just an amazing song. I would love to know what influenced him. He, I mean, Wichita Lineman is one of those songs that I cannot, cannot, can't, you know. We had a, that's been one of the song oh, stories yeah. on this show over the yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and I'm going to tell Terry Gross. I, you know, her, she loves jazz. Her husband is, you know, really involved in jazz music. Um I would love to hear her. I would love to hear music that made a difference to her. You know, about a year ago, <clears throat> I I came up with like five different variations on like T. Gross at WHY, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I sent them all off and all but one kicked back. So I think she got it. But she didn't get <laughs> that's, that's about right. That's about right. I um, I, I, I love Terry. And as I say, when people mistake our voices and compliment me on a piece I know she did, I always say thank you. But I once had to um, shepherd her on a station event. She came to Boston. And um, she was doing an interview uh, on, on, on a, a location. We went to Martha's Vineyard in this big, huge space. And she was interviewing Sarah Jessica Parker for the then – huge hit show, um, Sex and the City. And they were standing off to the side of the stage. And, you know, Sarah and Terry, <laughs> I came out to, to bring them out. And I said, how lucky are we? Here we have, we have the sexiest woman in America with us today. And we also have Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> Sarah hit the floor. She's pounding the floor. She's laughing. So she's a huge NPR fan. She's laughing so hard. Terry was just kind of looking at me, you know, Okay, <laughs> if you can get her, you know, and and we, and we actually did a lot of, we did a lot of funny bits together um, for radio promotions. Um, she's, you don't see Terry Gross flap, unflappable. I'd love to hear the music that meant something to her. We would love to have her, okay. and we've enjoyed. I mean, this is great. Thank That's you. That's so funny. Much for she doing responds this. to my emails. I don't know what. Yeah, you're yeah. Doing. You could be like, so you, there's this guy. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing it this. It really is a wonderful thing you're doing here. It's wonderful. And it's it's not easy because um, you're, you're right. Music, if if you're doing it right, if, you're, if your relationship with music is right, there's some that will just bring you to your knees, and that's a good thing. Because so, if you don't, it's uh, something in there that's just going to harden, you know, so you might as well. Thank you. Thank you. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chin Kui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is our online content producer and host. Our production assistant is Jared, the intern Gonzalez. Christophus is our executive producer. And our theme song was made by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's Parting Tune, we're going back two years to episode number 155 guest Rod. Roger Stoley recorded on location at his Cathead Delta Blues and Folk Art Store in Clarksdale, Mississippi. While working as a marketing executive in St. Louis in the early 2000s, Roger suddenly decided to make a radical change and move to Clarksdale with a mission to help organize and promote the blues from within. That move was motivated by and connected to the first blues album he ever bought, Muddy Waters' Folk Singer. He says, finding that cassette tape and this song in particular, My Home is 
in the Delta, put him on the road he's still on today, and the life he lives in Clarksdale promoting the blues. And he said that song will always take him back to his first trip to Clarksdale when he saw Muddy Waters' childhood home, which is now preserved in the Delta Blues Museum there in Clarksdale. But to have seen it out there on Stovall, to me, like I can just still picture seeing it there, that was the coolest because the cotton fields were just behind it. And another bluesman who I got to know really well before he passed away, Wesley Junebug Jefferson. We did a documentary called uh, M for Mississippi and filmed them out there. And then at, sort of at the end of the interview, he's looking out on the, the cotton fields of Stovall Plantation. And he says, yeah, you know, first he kind of talked up the romantic part of it, like he almost liked the lifestyle. And they said, yeah, there were some days, and he made his arms out like he's a bird. And he's like, I just wished I could just fly off from here, you know. Um, but that's, you know, the cotton plantations surrounding Clarksdale. Clarksdale at one time was the, the golden buckle on the cotton belt is what they called it. And that's really why we have the blues that we have that came from here and why Alan Lomax called it the land where blues began. You know, you can't really pick one spot on the map where blues absolutely began. Those first notes were played. But if you had to pick a region, you definitely would look at the Mississippi Delta. And if you had to pick a town and its county, you would look at Clarksdale. And it's really because of cotton. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. One. Two. Three. Four. four five. five.